Love the British monarchy? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Andrew Morton, I am so excited to talk to you again. Uh, The Queen comes out November 15th here in the United States. Oh, it was such a good read. And I was actually concerned that because, you know, we just lost her, I thought I was going to have a hard time reading it because I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be so upsetting. Uh, But you, it's so fast paced. It's uplifting. It's a great record of her life. And I do think that people that love the royal family I mean, obviously, you are the authority when it comes to royal biographies, but this one on the Queen is is unique and it's comforting and it's it's just kind of like the perfect end to her reign. If you have been following along, it's just it's a, it's a nice it's closure, I guess, is the best way that I would put it. How long have you been working on this? Because I feel like you've been working on this book for as long as I've known you, which is a few <laughs> years now. Yes, I have been working on this book for that's Well, first of all, that's very Nice of you to say that, Kinsey. It's very flattering. Thank you. Um, but I have been working on the book since about 2019. Wow. Um, I mean- and in fact, I remember, and this is one of these extraordinary things, I went to Scotland to re- to interview what you call the high hegians, some of the, some of the people in the know in, in Edinburgh. And some of them were on, which I discovered at the time, were on Operation Unicorn, which was if the Queen died in Balmoral. And they were just totally insouciant, totally knew that she was going to die in in Balmoral. And they had a plan to bring her down on on the Royal Train from Waverley Station, which is in Edinburgh, all the way down to London, but those plans were obviously were subsequently changed. But I, but when she went off to Balmoral for the last time um, this year, this summer, I had the sense, based on what they said, that this was her last hurrah, her, her, her long goodbye. And I think that the the book looks at her character, and I think you see the character of the Queen as well, in her final farewell, because she always said she'd like to be an actress. And my goodness, did she have a long curtain call? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I was it is sad looking at the UK now to know that her final, you know, she she worked up until she died and, you know, met with Liz Truss. Weeks later, we have Rishi Sunak, you know, I feel like the Queen would have liked to have been a part of all of that. As I was watching this unfold, I thought, oh, no. Um, but it, what a challenging time for King Charles. I'm sure that the, he's looking at things going, wow, I hope that everything straightens out. Well, there's a, there's a sense that that he's got to work as a partner with uh, Rishi Sunak now because Britain has found itself in such a precarious position that it's all hands to the pump, as it were. And I think that... King Charles's long experience uh, with bureaucracy, with uh, the, the, the people who run the country and his contacts in the Middle East and Far East and uh, Australia and elsewhere will be of great value to to uh, advise and help um, the new prime minister. Yeah, you have been so um, you're actually one of the first people that I heard that said, and you talk about it in this book, uh, you know, the queen was a great mom. She was a loving mother and any, you know, she, she really did care for her family. And um, I feel like 
you're one of the few that talk that way. Why is that? Why do they perpetuate this story of her being a distant woman, a dis, you know, country first and kind of cold towards her own children? Well, I mean, the evidence was uh, both in her actions, but also the memoir of Prince Charles, as he was, the Prince of Wales, uh, that you brought out in um, to, um, 2000, no, uh, 1994, um, where he talked about his mother being distant, his father being a bit of a bully. And his siblings all opposed that, but the damage was done. And also the Queen herself spent a long time away from her for her first two, uh, Anne and Charles, simply because she'd got the, the job of, of, of Queen at a time when she, her family was just beginning. Mm. And in, in, I think she's basically had a bad rap as a mom really. Um, she brought her children up in the way of the British aristocracy, you know, sent, sent them to private schools. Um, uh, the first children ever to be sent, first royal children ever, ever to be sent away uh, to school rather than being educated at the palace. Prince Charles, who hated his school days, would or now King Charles, uh, would much have preferred uh, to have stayed at the palace with a nanny or two uh, uh, paying obeisance to him. Um, but also you had the, the, the sense that, you know, the Queen did put duty before family. And she became Queen at a time when women were not CEOs of companies, when uh, in many respects, the Queen was something of a, a revolutionary in, yes. in the sense of having to have, she had a, to bring up a family, she had to be a CEO of Great Britain Inc. Um, she was traveling. I mean, just imagine she her first major tour after the coronation was to Australia and and, uh, and New Zealand. Six months she was away from her her children. Six months she was away from home on the road. Now I did the famous Charles and Diana trip to Australia in 1982, 83, and. We were exhausted after six weeks. Yeah. Meghan Markle, when she did Australia for 11 days, was complaining that it was too uh, too rigorous. Am I not getting but, paid for this? Sorry? She said, apparently Valentine Lowe reports, she said, I can't believe I'm not getting paid for this. Yeah, exactly. So she she was flabbergasted by the amount of uh, time, uh, about the energy it took just to do 11 days. Just right. imagine the Queen was away for six months. And there was no... A complaint from her there's no yeah. saying i've got to cut this short uh, she just did her duty and we saw and duty is the four letter word that runs through her like uh, a black like a, a rock at a seaside resort were you you know i i did i thought of you when the queen died and you know i did not reach out because i knew you would be so incredibly busy but as somebody that has followed this family so closely is it like losing somebody you know when when this happens well, I think that it's 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 more than that. It's somebody who you don't particularly know, know but you know a lot about. Mm. And they are, as I say in the book, I mean, the, the Queen has been around for everybody, like the White Cliffs of Dover. She's indefatigable, uh, inviolate, um, just an incredible individual. Someone who obviously appeared on your coins, on your stamps, 
was seemed uh, distant, but at the same time, you you know, let you into her front parlour um, every so often. And I remember the first time I saw the Queen, which was I was about oh 11, 12 years old, and I was a Boy Scout, and I stood and I from a town called Leeds in the north of England, and she came to open a a brutalist uh, shopping centre, and. Uh, it was a foggy day, and the Queen and Prince Philip were in there in the kind of royal phantom Rolls Royce, and it had a, a glass dome and a light shining through it, and they looked like people from another planet, you know, <laughs> because the the light was on them, and they just looked, you know, like something from outer space. And that was my first encounter with with um, the Queen. My second was in San Diego, actually, just down the road, uh, when the, the Royal Yacht Britannia came uh, ashore uh, during a trip to California. It, it was, if it was a West End play, it would be called the, the, the trip that went, the, the, the tour that went wrong, because everything that could go wrong did go wrong. My one takeaway from it, though, was that um, I thought the Royal Yacht was this beautiful ship, and I wanted to read about it, and um, I was talking to the Queen about the Royal Yacht on, whilst when we were on board having a, a cocktail. And um, it, 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 it was such a lovely vessel that it sparked my interest. And I ended up writing a book about it. And that, so I have the Queen to thank for, my, for the start of my literary career. Oh, well, that's so awesome. I didn't know that. That's so, so interesting. Um, I did want to ask you, because in the acknowledgments, I saw you thank Dickie Arbiter. Yeah, And I thought, oh my gosh, because at some point in your life, this is inside baseball because I love, you know, I'm a, I love the Royals. Um, but at some point in your life, Dickie was going on TV saying that your words were not true. So how, how did that friendship co come about? Because it, at some point in the media, Dickie was having to say on TV or say to reporters, Andrew Morton's book is not that, no, it can't be true. That has, you know, Diana didn't, uh, did not participate in it. Well, but in at, real at the life, time, you, at you the were. Time, Dickie was the Queen's Assistant Press Secretary, and he was having to do a, a, a job. And he was trying to make the best of a very bad job, really, because the, uh, because Diana would not uh, play ball uh, with him. And in fact, Diana uh, Diana did, was worried before the book, Diana, Her True, True Story, came out with all its explosive re revelations. And she says she said to Dickie, what shall I do? And Dickie said to her, pour yourself a stiff scotch. <laughs> but yeah, he and I have been sparring partners for years. But um, and, and his his daughter Victoria is a, a royal commentator as well. I love that. I love the full circle. That I was so tickled when I saw his name in the acknowledgments because as somebody that is so fixated on that part of history and Diana talking to you, that's my favorite part of the royal history. So that really tickled me to see his name in there. Um, I you also talked about how the Queen won a BAFTA, but she would much rather win a gold cup at Ascot. Um, do you think she would be d disappointed that King Charles is selling some of her horses, or was that was that expected? Well, I mean, King Charles is, is selling some of her horses in the same way that the Queen herself sold some of her horses every year. You can't have you can't keep all the horses that are bred, and it's just a, it's a straightforward sale. Um, according to the trainers who have, who have spoken about that sale, um, but obviously she, her, she was 
very keen, very uh, absolutely. It's it's linked to her the, the horse racing, the turf. Um, King Charles is not quite as as fascinated yeah. by it, so it remains to be seen what happens to the stables. Camilla, of course, was a great is a great horse rider herself, and um, she may be the one who's who who takes over the the stables. But um, uh, it's an expensive hobby. Mm. The Queen enjoyed it. Um, whether Prince or whether King Charles will have the time given the precarious situation in Britain and the need for King Charles to go around the Commonwealth, to Canada, to Australia, New Zealand, Caribbean countries, and really to you know, stamp his his mark on them. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to have too much time to watch the turf. To watch That's the, a races. really good point. I also loved that you said horses and dogs they loved her for her. And that might have been really why she had this incredible relationship with those animals. They didn't care, you know, what her title was, and they didn't want anything from her other than love. Well, that's that's true up to a point. But at the same time, she was innately, in, as a little girl, she was absolutely fascinated by horses. Uh, uh, she got her first horse age four, um, I think, uh, uh, King George V gave it to her. Um, and every night she had all these wooden horses in her nursery, in her nursery bedroom, and she would feed them, she would groom them, she would gentle mm. them, she would chat to them. Oh. Of course, Margaret did the same thing, uh, but but more so Elizabeth. And when her first her first and only governess came along, came along Marion Crawford, she, she said to her, uh, can, uh, can I take you round the nursery and she put a bridle on her and <laughs> they went off around the nursery and you know that kind of fascination for well inanimate animate animals uh again shows something of the the humanity of the woman she you know she she liked living things so back to being a mother she you know she mothered the the horses you talk about a genuine soft spot for Prince Harry, um, the grandchild that always had an act to jump the line to be able to see the queen, which I thought that was a great way of describing that relationship because we'd, you know, we've heard about that a little bit, uh, much to the frustration of royal officials. When did he lose those privileges or did he ever lose those privileges of being the grandchild that jumps the line? Because I do think I recall during Sandringham, he tried to jump the line and they wouldn't let him. They had to have the well, official yeah, summit. Well, yeah, during the whole um, Brexit or Mexit saga, um, the the private secretary realized, knew that, let's just, let's just spin this back for a minute. Okay. The queen has got a soft spot for her children, full yeah. stop. I mean, you've got to remember that this is a family. It's not a corporation. I mean, there's, you know, it's it's about family relationships. And uh, let me give you an example. When Prince Edward had the bright idea of doing It's a Royal Knockout back in the 1980s, uh, Prince Charles, the Queen's advisors, and the Queen herself all said no. <laughs> they thought it was a really bad idea mixing pantomime and monarchy would demean the monarchy. They thought it was a stinker, <laughs> even though it was good for the even though it was good for, for the various charities that uh, Prince Edward was supporting, and Edward then got in to see the Queen, convinced her that it was a good thing, and she overruled 
her advisors, her, her private secretary, and also her eldest son, Prince, then as he was Prince Charles. And it's a royal knockout started, but uh, was staged. And I have to say, I was at that thing, and it was the most miserable, longest, one of the most miserable, longest, coldest days of my life, even though it was in June. It was one of those bitterly cold June days. And and I saw, it, I saw I saw clips of it, and it didn't seem like Prince Edward was very nice to you guys that day. No, on that day, well, on that day, I mean, I'm talking about we'd been up for about 14 hours, and we're all tired and wanted to go go home. And he said, "Well, well, did you all enjoy it?" And everybody's thinking, "Not really." <laughs> you know, nobody <laughs> wanted to say it was a it was a shambling embarrassment. Um, and he said, "Right," and he and he and he minced off like a ballerina with a hole in his tongue, <laughs> and to quote the famous Harry Arnold. And um, uh, and that the staging of that and the televising of that really um, changed the, the the narrative of the relationship between the royal family and the public. Fast forward to Harry, he too has the ability had the ability to get in to see his mother again, also his grandmother again because um, he's part of the family. Mm -hmm. So during Mexit. The, the the officials were were very keen to stop him from uh, uh, convincing the queen to to um, uh, change her mind on on certain aspects of of their withdrawal. Um, so yes, and, and he and, and of course you know when the queen played along with his stunt with Obama and uh, Michelle Obama. Um, um, with regards to the, the Invictus Games when they did that. Boom! <laughs> you know, uh, he 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 was very good at, at getting the queen to to agree to his some of his schemes, and 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 good for him. You know, it's it's great that you, you can do that. And and even and there's some pictures of, of of him on the balcony making you know essaying a joke with with the queen. Yeah, I love this quote. You said position always trumps popularity. And that kind of, I feel like, wraps up what happened with Harry and Meghan in a nice little bow that they were saying we're the most popular, but they just it, it they weren't in the right position. It just was it was the way it is. I have to ask you. Wait, go ahead if you want to respond to that. No, I, just, I think I think that's just for, for anybody watching. That is the point you've got to take away from this whole Harry, Meghan, Catherine, William saga that. Whatever, whatever and however however popular they are, uh, the position of William is Prince of Wales, future king. Prince of the, the position of Harry is is going to be uh, significant for a short while until William and Catherine's children become adults, and then the focus will be on that nuclear family. So, and and it happens, by the way, every generation. Mm -hmm. Princess Margaret was really popular. Lord Snowden, were really, his her husband, were really popular in the 60s. And then it, it, they, they faded as the younger royals come through. It's a generational thing. And we're going through a period now uh, of, of what happened during the 70s, where the, where the young, youngsters were still going to, sco to school, 60s and 70s, go, going to school. And then um, they become adults and then, the world takes a real interest in them. Who are they going to marry? Where are they going to live? What kind of royal are they? And that's and that's the 
the wheel of royalty, as it were. That's perfect. That's such a that's exactly what's going on. And I love I love hearing that from you. Um, I have to ask you about something that I forgot to ask you the last time I talked. There is a show that you appeared on in 2003 called Meet the Royals. Now, paint this picture for me, Andrew Morton. You get a call or an email and somebody says Davy Jones from the Monkees is going to host a show about the British royal family. Are you going what are you talking about? Or are you saying this is a brilliant idea? And actually the show is amazing, but just the combination of all these characters cracks me up. I can't remember this. This is uh, Are you kidding? It, no, it's I like, wasn't I wasn't I never met Davy Jones. He was hosting it. Yes. It's like and, like and walk and talks of you around castles. As and, I remember, it was a Boston-based TV company that interviewed me about certain as I don't know, 13 things to do with the royals i mean to be honest with you you could put a gun to my head and i wouldn't really remember it that well because i've done so many interviews over the years i know you have you're you're a rock star but it is hilarious it's like hey hey meet the royals and it's hosted by (laughs) davy jones and you're doing all of these great walk and talks like it's you around a lake and you're like young and you're like just you are owning it and it is just such a funny and they've got all of these um pop-up animations the aesthetics are perfect it's it's bright colors and fun and and very um it's just it's great i would do the show today i I must try you must send me a copy of it i'm going to because remember you you do the gig you did i did the walk and talk and that was the end of my involvement Um, oh my gosh i think i think it was a boston-based company as as i recall this has yeah, it was for A and E Network, and it is so good. I just have such a good time watching them. Yeah, okay. um, two thousand and three—that's that's going back a few years. I know. I, I will send them to you. And then uh, also, I watched a Sally Jesse Raphael interview you did, and you and James Whitaker were so funny together. I mean, it was double trouble. You two sitting next to each other, and James Whitaker saying, "Like, I guess there was a it was a bigger panel, and I won't even say who else was on the panel, but." James Whitaker was like, if you buy anyone's book, buy Andrew Morton's, like just <laughs> trashing everybody else on the panel. It was so, I just, I get a kick out of watching this old stuff. He, he, James is, is much missed. He, oh, yes. He, he used to say that he was the sorcerer and I was his apprentice. Oh. And, and for uh, for viewers, he, 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 he died what, a decade ago or so. But before that, he was like the dean of the royal watchers, and he was more royal than the royal themselves. The royals themselves. Diana used to call him the the big red fat tomato because he had a big red ski suit, and he always used to carry binoculars with him um, to get a better view of the uh, of the royals. And Diana always used to say, "Is he trying to look at my skirt?" <laughs> Probably but yes, but uh, I mean those days on the road with people like. Harry Arnold and James, of course, and Ashley Walton and uh, Richard Kay. Um, oh, yeah. It was the most fun you could have with your clothes on. Oh, so great. I love that. I'm so jealous. The, you know, that's again, that's my favorite time to read about, to watch. And it does. Well, it looks I mean, like you that, are all having fun. That, that was a time. I mean, going back, that was a time uh, when um, it was there was there was no um uh, 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 internet yeah. and you it was just newspapers and and you were kind of like the 
the the white knight going into battle for your newspaper every every day to to try and get an exclusive story it was a it was a it was a, a glamorous a kind of a glamorous gig but quite a tough one it did seem like too while you were competitive you it was also a you know a brotherhood a sisterhood it, it did feel like there was competition but there was also a sincere respect and love between everyone well i wouldn't say love but there was certainly respect yeah <laughs> okay yeah, yeah, yeah. i I, drew, I crossed the line with love you know how americans are we're just very touchy feely yeah um, I wanted to ask you, I heard you tell this really great story in person, the, I think in Pasadena, about being at an event and having a, a mutual friend with Prince Andrew uh, and that person bringing up Prince Andrew while oh, yeah. you were there. Can you can you share that with me? Yeah, I, I, it was after, I, I was staying at somebody's house for the weekend and it was after dinner uh, and I was talking to Sir David Tang. David Tang had a uh, was a good friend of Fergie's. Very good friend of Fergie's um, and uh, and Prince Andrew, and he was saying to me, "Oh, talking about the royals and so on." And I, I said, "Yes, I've written the only book about Prince Andrew, and it was called Andrew the Playboy Prince, written in 1982." Um, and so we were kind of laughing about that. He says, "I'll tell you what, I'll ring him now and and tell him that." So. <laughs> He took out his mobile phone and he rings Prince Andrew and Andrew answers the phone and says, and he says, it's Tang here. And they said, I'm standing with Andrew Morton. And he says that he's written the only book about you. Is that true? Click. <laughs> and he and he totally blanked him um, because, of course, after my Diana book, I'm persona non grata with certain members of the royal family. And, the, and, and I use that, though, as an example of when Prince Andrew was talking on uh, on Newsnight about the fact that he had to stay with uh, Jeffrey Epstein four or five days to end his friendship in an honourable manner. And I thought, well, he didn't. And I use that because when with David Tang, he didn't. He ended that friendship with a click. <laughs> there was no there were no back and forth emails, even though David was a was a very long time friend. And obviously I'm sure they made it up afterwards, but um it just it just illustrates the fact that what a what a load of hokum that that excuse was. Because if a royal decides they don't want to see you, they'll either change their phone number or they'll they won't ring you back or their secretary will answer and you won't get through. And after all, it's the same with any CEO of it or with any company, if you try and contact somebody, uh, they can just say no, and it's and that's that's one of the um, excuses that Prince Andrew gave that left me baffled. Yeah, I mean, our what do you? How do you feel? I know I'm going to let you go because I think I have two minutes left with you. But do you? Um, how do you feel like he's dealing with the Queen's death? Uh, he she really was one of his only allies. Do you think this is a lonely time for Prince Andrew? Yeah, I think it's, it's very difficult for, for Prince Andrew now. I mean, I think that I think the best he can hope for is to be uh, to take some kind of stewardship job on the royal estates, either um, uh, Windsor or uh, Sandringham or uh, Balmoral, and and do some kind of work in in that way for the family. Um, I don't see him making a, a, a royal comeback uh, anytime soon. 
Well, Andrew Morton, it's a pleasure to speak to you again. November 15th is when The Queen comes out. You can pre-order it now. Um, I'm excited to to get it on Audible, too, because I love listening to my books. I, I got an early copy yesterday, and it looks even better than it actually does in the pictures. It looks, it's really glossy. And really, it's the the modern cover, I wanted to tell you, that cover is fantastic. I don't know who did that, but it is so, it pops. It's great, it's, you can almost take a knife and fork to it and just, it's like meringue. You can just Ooh. eat it. Yeah, you'll love it. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, and I will see you in December. I can't wait to see you at some of your events that you're doing around the book. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the To Die For Daily Podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers. <laughs>